Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 87, November 14th to November 20th, 1862. Last week, we talked about some of the actions that were immediately prior to the removal of George B. McClellan. Little Mac had been embarrassed once again by Jeb Stuart and saw missed opportunity in the Loudoun Valley campaign. We also talked about action in Missouri at Clark's Mill. This week, yet again, we are going to be on the lighter side. We will close out with the Emancipation Proclamation, but I do want to first talk about the introduction of the Gatling gun. Before we get into that, though, I do want to mention there is Patreon content posted, as you probably have heard from the previous episodes here. Hardtack and Coffee, that's a memoir review, is posted on the Patreon. And for next month, month of December here, I think we're finally going to do it. I think we're going to do a movie review, and this one's going to be Gods and Generals. So I've talked about that one before. We're getting into some of the events that happen in that movie, and then, uh, of course, it concludes in 1863, so it's a good kind of middle ground here for the timeline, so I think it's finally time that we post that movie review, so that will be hitting the Patreon here in December, and there is a link to the Patreon in the description if that sounds like something that would interest you, and of course, the proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. Now, the Gatling gun may be, in my opinion, the most recognizable weapon of the 1800s. You do not have to be really involved with history to look at a picture of a Gatling gun and then be able to correctly identify it. So, I will make sure to include for those of you who may not be aware of what this particular weapon looks like, a picture to the website. But essentially, this is an early version of a machine gun. It is not quite an automatic weapon, because it was required to be cranked by a gunner. The original design had six barrels with cartridges that were fed into the barrels by a hopper. Gravity would drop the new cartridge into a groove so that it could be fired. As the mechanism cranked, it would load the weapon and then discharge a spent cartridge. This weapon could fire 200 rounds a minute as a result. With this rate of fire, it could take over for the use of grape shot and canister by the artillery being used during the war. The weapon was around the same size and weight as the artillery that were currently being used. Dr. Richard Gatling, a North Carolina native, was the inventor of the gun. His father, Jordan Gatling, was also an inventor. Sir Richard, from an early age, had a knack for invention. Richard actually designed a screw propeller but missed out on being able to patent his design. 
he would go on to patent other inventions, including farm equipment, a rice planter that was used as a wheat drill. It would actually be this design which would lead to the Gatling gun. Even back in the day, there was a concern to prevent the amount of lives that were lost in the horrors of war. Gatling saw that men were dying not only on the battlefield, but also through disease. So his purpose was to make the war more automated in design. Gatling went through an arms company in Cincinnati to make his weapons, not deterred by the lack of traction his ideas were getting. We have to understand as well, when we have an idea like a repeating carbine, this may seem like a good idea to us, but the cost of these weapons and the cost of ammunition that could potentially be wasted was on the minds of the U.S. War Department, so do not forget that. The design was patented in November of 1862, but this did not mean that it was widely used during the war. In fact, it would not be standard issue in the U.S. Army until 1866, at which point it would see action with other nations. But why exactly was that? Well, in 1862, it was still using paper cartridges, which were not conducive to the usage in such a weapon. It would often jam as a result. Later in the 1860s, a brass cartridge was introduced, being a better ammunition for such a weapon, leading to the Gatling gun being adopted by not only the U.S. Army, but armies abroad. Improvements to the design increased the rate of fire to 600 rounds a minute, and also allowed for a smokeless cartridge in 1893. During the Civil War, Benjamin Butler, who has weird stamps on our story, actually purchased 13 of the weapons to be used on the peninsula in 1864 when he was the commander of the Army of the James. Still more Gatling guns were used on gunboats before the war ended. It was suggested that the weapons be used to eliminate the rioting in New York City. It was also used against strikers during the Pennsylvania Railroad Strike of 1877. Gatling guns did have the major drawback of leaving the gunners exposed, so when facing an organized or industrialized nation, it could pose a problem. Against a mob, or in the Anglo-Zulu War, the weapon saw better usage. Eventually, the weapon was discarded in 1911, being declared obsolete by the introduction of more advances in machine gun technology. So, the conclusions we can draw from this are that yes, there was a Gatling gun, and it was not widely used during the Civil War. I think we talked about in one of our movie reviews, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. There are several Gatling guns that are displayed, and this would be incorrect. However, in a weird twist, there is a scene where a Gatling gun is used in a prison situation to keep prisoners in, prisoners of war that is. So, in a way, 
it is the right usage for a mob keeping them in check. So points off for the amount of Gatling guns that are being used in actual warfare situations, but points for tactically what it probably would have been best used as. Let's talk briefly about the situation in Virginia as we are leading up to the Battle of Fredericksburg in December. Something that I think is lost on Burnside's tenure, given how eventually it turns out, is that he does beat Lee to Fredericksburg, surprising the rebel general. Sumner and his Grand Division would arrive in the central Virginia town, sending across the river at Falmouth. He would wish to strike quickly at the weaker rebel forces on the opposite side. Burnside, though, was wanting to wait for the pontoon bridges, which he assumed were on the way. He feared that a swelling of the Rappahannock River would isolate part of his army, a disaster that would seal his fate. In the meantime, Hooker suggested that they do just that with an aggressive move, which he bypassed Burnside with writing a letter directly to Halleck. This is going to be sort of part of the course for the next couple of months in the Army of the Potomac. First you have Hooker, who's undermining Burnside and his tenure as Army commander, and eventually it's going to kind of turn around on Hooker as well, following the Chancellorsville campaign. So there's going to be this kind of war of generals, jockeying for position, at least for the foreseeable future. Burnside, though, would hold off on an attack, even with the river being quite fordable. In fact, if you drive by the Rappahannock, there are certain times during the year you probably say something like, wow, how was this a barrier? Remember, too, that the Chickahominy is not very much to look at but when it rains, it becomes a big obstacle. So the armies would wait. Lee, with half of his force, and Burnside gathering the rest of his, staring across the river from one another for the time being. It should be noted that Lee would rather have set up a defensive position at the North Anna River, and bookmark that idea, by the way, but he is on political pressure from Davis, to make sure the stand is at Fredericksburg, so there he is going to stay, slowly getting Jackson to join Lee's wing. This week, I think, is fitting to read out the Emancipation Proclamation, which by this point in our story has been announced by the Lincoln administration. It should be known that there was a mixed reception to this proclamation, so it needed to come on the heels of a victory, and, hopefully, a successful midterm election. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States of America, and Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy thereof, do hereby proclaim and declare that hereafter, as heretofore, the war will be prosecuted for the object of practically restoring the constitutional relation 
between the United States and each of the states and the people thereof, in which states that relation is or may be suspended or disturbed. That it is my purpose upon the next meeting of Congress to again recommend the adoption of a practical measure tendering pecuniary aid to the free acceptance or rejection of all slave states, so-called, the people whereof may not then be in rebellion against the United States, and which states may then have voluntarily adopted, or thereafter may voluntarily adopt, immediate or gradual abolishment of slavery within their respective limits, and that the effort to colonize persons of African descent with their consent upon this continent or elsewhere with the previously obtained consent of the governments existing there will be continued. That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free, and the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts that they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January, aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states, and part of states, if any, in which the people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States, and the fact that any state, or the people thereof, shall, on that day, be, in good faith, represented in the Congress of the United States, by members chosen thereto, at elections wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such state shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong, countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and people thereof, are not then in rebellion against the United States. That attention is hereby called to an act of Congress entitled An Act to Make an Additional Article of War, approved March 13, 1862, and which act is in the words and figure following. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that hereafter the following shall be promulgated as an additional article of the war for the government of the Army of the United States, and shall be obeyed and observed as such. Article all officers or persons in the military or naval service of the United States are prohibited from employing any of the forces under their respective commands for the purpose of returning fugitives from service or labor, who may have escaped from any persons to whom such service or labor is claimed to be due, and any officer who shall be found guilty by court-martial of violating this article shall be dismissed from the service. Section 2, and be it further enacted, that this act shall take effect from and after its passage. Also, to the ninth and 10th sections of act entitled, An Act to Suppress Insurrection, to Punish Treason and Rebellion, to Seize and Confiscate Property of Rebels, and for Other Purposes, approved July 17, 1862, in which sections are in the words and figures following. Section 9. And be it further enacted that all slaves of persons who shall hereafter be engaged in a rebellion against the government of the United States, 
or who shall in any way give aid or comfort thereto, escaping from such persons and taking refuge within the lines of the army, and all slaves captured from such persons or deserted by them and coming under the control of the government of the United States, and all slaves of such persons found on or being within any place occupied by rebel forces and afterwards occupied by the forces of the United States, shall be deemed captives of war and shall be forever free of their servitude and not again held as slaves. Section 10. And be it further enacted that no slave escaping into any state, territory, or the District of Columbia from any other state shall be delivered up or in any way impeded or hindered of his liberty except for crime or some offense against the laws unless the person claiming said fugitive shall first make oath that the person to whom the labor or service of such fugitive is alleged to be due is his lawful owner and has not borne arms against the United States in the present rebellion, nor in any way given aid and comfort thereto, and no person engaged in the military or naval service of the United States shall, under any pretense whatever, assume to decide on the validity of the claim of any person to the service or labor of any other person, or surrender up any such person to the claimant on pain of being dismissed from the service. And I do hereby enjoin upon and order all persons engaged in the military and naval service of the United States to observe, obey, and enforce within their respective spheres of service the act and sections above recited. And the executive will in due time recommend that all citizens of the United States who shall have remained loyal thereto throughout the rebellion shall, upon the restoration of the constitutional relation between the United States and their respective states and people, if that relation shall have been suspended or disturbed, be compensated for all losses by acts of the United States, including the loss of slaves. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this 22nd day of September in the year of our Lord, 1862, and of the independence of the United States, the 87. Signed, Abraham Lincoln, by the President, signed, William H. Seward. Now, this is the first edition, and it will not be officially issued until January 1st, 1863. Just know this is in the works, and as we have mentioned, it does a good job in transforming the war into a different type of conflict. Now, I know there was a lot of hereunto, whereof, states this, states that, right? There was a lot of that in there. It was actually pretty challenging to read even though it's pretty cut and dry in, in what you're saying here. But um, let's break it down just a little bit. And that is, you might have caught in the verbiage here that this is really only applying for the states that are currently in rebellion against the United States. So there is an interesting point to make here in that, say, like Kentucky, they're slaves are not necessarily freed under the emancipation proclamation so we have where 
the Lincoln administration does not want to continue to alienate these border states. We've mentioned it several times in the 1861 episodes that Washington, D.C. very recently was a place where you could auction slaves, right? And it is surrounded by Maryland, which is a slave state. So anything that could unite those who have been neutral so far, or maybe even on the side of the federal government, and then flip them to the Confederate side, that's not going to be something that Lincoln wants to do. We have the hindsight of 2020, right? Like we can look back and say, well, the war ends up going the way of the Union, right? And, and hopefully you, you know that by, by now. I hope I'm not necessarily spoiling anything there that the Union wins the war, right? But nonetheless, it, we know how it ends up. But Lincoln doesn't. And especially in this stage of the war, it's, it's really anybody's game, right? Their odds are stacked up against the Confederacy. But there have been nations who have survived better odds, right? You can think about all these different times in history, say like the Greeks, for instance, you know, even Alexander the Great ends up conquering the Persian Empire. He's super outnumbered in all these battles that he's fighting, right? So it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. And even though we are aware that there is no foreign intervention during the war, England and France don't try to mediate things, right? That's not something that's off the table either. We had the Trent Affair last year. We had, going into Antietam, probably the most likely time in which there would have been foreign intervention. That was just two months ago. So if things don't continue to go the way of the North, that is still a possibility. So there's a lot of things that are up in the air for the Lincoln administration that we have to consider when this was written. And it was actually written, as you could hear from the date, it was written in September, so right after Antietam. There is something that is going to play a huge part in our story, and I don't know if you caught that either. It's slyly making the war effort switch, especially we're going to see in the Vicksburg campaign how it kind of switches in terms of dynamic, is that if you have your army in Mississippi, say, and there are all these former slaves who are coming into the army. You know, previously, especially under George B. McClellan, the practice was going to be, well, you got to send those folks home, right? But now it's sort of encouraging them to come into the fold and then they're going to be given their liberty after that. So they're going to be free. And that's going to continue to suck away at the manpower that's available for the Confederacy to sustain their economy, right? It's also going to bring in a lot of extra hands for the Union war effort. So let's not just consider this simply a humanitarian kind of proclamation. There is another alternative motive, which is we could have these guys working for us. You know, Grant actually sets up some self-sustaining towns in the West, and they are working toward the Union war effort, we can also have these individuals fight for the Union, right? And they do. And we'll get into here in a later episode of 
regiments that start to be formed, official regiments. You know, I know we just had Island Mound not too long ago. That was not officially recognized by the United States government, but official regiments that are going to be made that are actually going to have good combat service. So, and even if they don't, then they're going to be guarding supply lines. They're going to be doing things that's going to free up manpower to go to the front. So either way you cut it, it's going to be advantageous to have this for the Union war effort. Finally, at the very end, you notice that there is going to be monetary incentive for some of these folks who didn't necessarily join the Confederate cause to free their slaves. They're going to be compensated for those losses. And that's kind of like you have a carrot and then you have a stick method. Uh, and we see that very clearly here where, hey, if you if you didn't rebel or anything, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to be able to at least recoup on some of these losses. So I know we, we constantly talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and and we say, you know, it's, it's, it's about freeing the slaves. S- sort of, right? It, it is about emancipating some slaves. But then there's also sort of these nods to the border states who are already under federal control and also giving this nod toward the way of life in the South. So there's all these kind of complex ideas and, and notions in this proclamation that I think is probably eye-opening to some folks who just assumed this was something that Lincoln wrote simply to free the slaves. So it's a lot more complicated than that, I think. But we can go ahead and pause right there. Today, we went over the patent for the Gatling gun, the strategic situation in Virginia, as well as read the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, we have already gone over the significance of that document, but just remember, it will not go into effect until we roll over in 1863. Next week, we have another lighter episode, as we are going to jump much deeper into something we have already mentioned, the court-martial of Fitz John Porter. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. And of course, the support goes toward the general upkeep of the show. It's greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.